0: Hello, and welcome to episode 79 of ERRX, a podcast tailored to your clinical needs. I'm your host, Adis Carrick, and I'm very excited about this episode because we're joined by two very smart people, and those people are going to be talking about scorpions and meth. And before we do that, I just want to take a second to introduce my awesome guests. You probably remember Dr. Rebecca Gregg from way back in episode 35, When I had her on the show to talk about Pediatric Advanced Life Support, which is still one of the most downloaded episodes of the podcast. Rebecca is a board-certified pediatric ER pharmacist who works in a large Level 1 Pediatric Trauma Center in Arizona. Hello, Rebecca.
1: Hello, good morning.
0: And then my other guest today is Dr. Dan Brooks. Dr. Brooks is the Medical Director of the Banner Poison and Drug Information Center, the co-director of the Center for Toxicology and Pharmacology Education and Research, and he's also a clinical professor of emergency medicine and internal medicine. Dr. Brooks completed his residency at the University of Pittsburgh, his fellowship at the Good Samaritan Regional Medical Center in Phoenix, and he is board certified in emergency medicine and medical toxicology. Hello, Dr. Brooks. Good morning. Hi. Thank you guys so much for being here and for taking time out of your very busy lives to help educate uh, me and the listeners. I, I really appreciate it.
2: Of course, it's a privilege.
0: Yeah, it's a privilege. Thank you. Absolutely. So if you guys are like me, uh, as in you guys, as, as, as in the listeners, uh, you probably don't have much exposure to pediatric patients in general, and there's a high chance that you also don't live in the Southwest. And so the topic of scorpions and meth may seem very odd at first glance, uh, but don't worry, we're going to explain ourselves in just a bit. And to kick us off, I'm going to give you guys a quick background about the star of our show, the Bark Scorpion. So the Bark Scorpion should really be better described as the Rock Scorpion because it lives in crevices within rocks instead of digging into the soil like other scorpions do. And this little guy is mostly found in the southwest United States and Mexico, with Arizona having the most phone calls to poison control centers for scorpion stings in the U.S., while also being home to 57 species of scorpions. The bark scorpion is the only scorpion of real clinical importance in this region because its sting can cause significant morbidity and sometimes even mortality. And different from other scorpion species, it likes to climb vertical surfaces And they tend to aggregate with other members of its species. And if you recall, other scorpions are typically solitary. This guy, he's a little yellow tan, small and slender scorpion. And he has pretty large front claw arms and tail compared to the main body. And it also tends to hold a tail curved sideways next to the body instead of vertically up, helping it climb up through cracks and crevices and right into your bed. Um, so with that background, uh, Dr. Brooks, how many envenomations does Arizona see per year? Yeah, well,
2: there's two poison centers in Arizona, and there's ours up in Phoenix and our colleagues uh, down at the School of Pharmacy in Tucson. And we get about 15,000 phone calls a year about the uh, scorpion uh, stings. Uh, about 95% of those are so we're able to keep at home regardless of the patient age, uh, but the rest of the folks um, are usually triaged into an urgent care or an emergency department for some evaluation, often
0: getting antivenom. Okay, and Rebecca, how serious can these stings be?
1: So um, there's four different grades that we use to determine the severity of the scorpion sting. Uh, So if we go through those grade one, would just be localized pain and paresthesias at the site. So if you're stung on your hand for your left hand, for example, the pain would be localized right there. And most of the time you're not able to visualize the sting. uh, Redness and inflammation are not frequently present, um, but that would be where the person would be complaining of their pain. Grade two would be if you have pain and paresthesias extending beyond the side of the sting. So if it's progressing up the arm or even the uh, opposite arm or another part of the body. Grade three would be either the presence of cranial nerve dysfunction or skeletal neuromuscular dysfunction, one or the other. So cranial nerve dysfunction would look like excessive drooling and secretions in more severe cases, abnormal eye movements with blurry vision, Um, And that could be either nystagmus or opsoclonus, slurred speech in older children or in severe cases in adults or tongue fasciculations. And then somatic um, skeletal neuromuscular dysfunction would be restlessness, body fasciculations, shaking and jerking of the extremities. Um, a backward hyperextension of the head and lower limbs, or a forward um, flexion of the body. So we would see that particularly in younger children. And then grade four would be if you have the presence of both of those things. So abnormal eye movements and the restlessness would be a sim- sign of grade four envenomation. You could also have additional uh, things like hyperthermia, respiratory failure in more severe cases, and Progression to rhabdomyolysis, but the dr- definitions as we have them are the presence of both cranial nerve and skeletal neuromuscular dysfunction.
0: Okay, and do you guys have any idea? You know, talking about these four grades of en- of envenomation, what is the breakdown of percentage of 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 pediatric patients or patients in general that get that gets that gets stung? Is it mostly grade one and two, or is there like a percentage breakdown of of how severe these can be? Um, when they present,
2: so yes, uh, we've got an idea. You know, it's uh, the, the data is a little bit biased because of reporting bias. You know, we're we're only aware of the stings that are reported to uh, poison centers specifically. We can also mine data from emergency departments and and pediatric offices and such. But most of the information uh, comes from poison centers, and again, we're we're only aware of those folks that call us, either the patient or the caregiver or the ER staff when they're treating them. So with that in mind, it it is about 95 to 97% of folks do well with just local pain control. And that can include just NSAIDs. Sometimes you need like an opiate, um, but typically um, the vast majority of folks are within grade one or grade two, and they do okay with some Tylenol or Motrin. Nothing else really helps. We say cool compresses sometimes. Sometimes people feel better with, with maybe a warm compressor or heat. You know, It's sort of like the gate theory, right? You just confuse your pain receptors, and then maybe they don't know how to register pain so specifically mm-hmm. to your brain. But there, but it is about, you know, 1 in 20 or maybe a little less that end up with a grade 3 or grade 4, and they meet criteria for antivenom, and that's typically based on um, concern for the airway, handling secretions with, with excessive uh, salivation, or just very difficult time uh, swallowing. Uh, and then they they meet criteria, and we give them antivenom, and they almost always get better within uh, about an hour or so. And then, in most cases, they go home.
0: Okay, perfect. So, for a large majority of the patients, it is just typically a, a grade maybe one or two um, envenomation. Am I hearing that correctly?
2: Yes. Yep. Perfect. And there's some some older studies. Um, one of my ex colleagues, Frank Levecchio, published a patient uh, a paper, sorry, about 15 years ago that looked at it, and then. Um, I, 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 think, um, uh, Rebecca was talking about Steve Curry's paper from al- almost 40 years ago about scorpion stings and they, and they break it down and the numbers haven't changed that much overall, which, which is uh,
0: reassuring and, and, and it helps us plan for the future. Right. Perfect. Perfect. That makes a lot of sense. And when we talk about these, these signs and symptoms and these grades of envenomation, uh, Dr. Brooks, can you tell us about how the scorpion venom actually causes the damage and the signs and symptoms that we see mechanistically? Yeah,
2: sure. You know, scorpion, their venom is very complex. And and if you look at it, it shares some similarities with with venom in other animals and other species, like some spiders and really with, with some stuff that's in snake venoms. But for scorpions specifically, they um, activate sodium channels. And More specifically, they prevent inactivation of sodium channels. And as we remember, sodium channels can be opened uh, several different mechanisms, and then they let sodium rush into the cell, and then that cell contracts or or is activated and then either does something, or it stimulates the next cell, or it stimulates at the neuromuscular junction, so the cell can activate a muscle group. So when you prevent inactivation, you're basically having activation of the cell So you have excessive, uncontrolled activation of of sodium channels, and and they manifest um, specifically, uh, like Rebecca said, at the neuromuscular junction. And that's what leads to uh, pain and paresthesias, and as things get worse, uncontrolled um, muscle movement.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. And so we touched on this just a little bit earlier with Dr. Brooks's answer to the previous question, but... Rebecca, when we talk about the signs and symptoms that uh, a patient can present, what does that look like? Uh, And more specifically, um, how do your pediatric patients present after a bark scorpion sting?
1: So um, like Dr. Brooks was saying, the vast majority of patients, you know, either don't present to our hospital, or even if they do, they can be treated with ibuprofen or just monitored. Um, But there are the select few that progress very quickly into a severe state. And, you know, it seems to be inversely related to body size oftentimes. So if you have uh, the same amount of venom going into a, a large adult, it's not necessarily going to present the same way as that amount of venom presenting to a toddler or an infant. Um, so our most severe cases are in the younger child, um, not exclusively, but definitely more uh common. And they present with a lot of pain, agitation, um, crying, autonomic instability. So they're tachycardic, they're drooling, um, they're moving, their body flexing forward and, and hyperextending, like I mentioned before. Um, they have a lot of eye movements, and the Place where we worry is if their airway starts to be impacted. So, if they're se- secreting a lot of secretions and they're not able to control their muscle movements um, and they're on their back and they, you know, have bronchospasm and bronchorrhea and all of that, we worry about um, them becoming hypoxic and us needing to intervene in their airway. So It looks very scary for somebody who's not familiar with it, Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of things that it can get confused with, and uh, seizures is a big one, Um, methamphetamine toxicity, which we'll talk about in a bit, and some other things. And so if you're not familiar with it, and you're not from this area, and you've never seen it in an infant, it can be quite terrifying. It certainly is for the parents, Um, for us having seen it many times. You know, we know that we can treat and likely send them home in a short period of time. So we work quickly to do that. But it is uh, quite frightening when you don't know what you're dealing with.
0: I agree. You know, I, I watched some YouTube videos that Rebecca sent me before this episode. And, you know, thankfully, there's not a lot of scorpions up in Minnesota, but I would imagine that it's very terrifying and frightening to be a parent and, and watching your child go through this. So for those of you listening who don't know what this looks like, you can you can YouTube and, and Google um, a lot of videos about the bark scorpion sting. And it's truly remarkable um, how these little kiddos look. And it's it's quite quite sad. And and I'm sure it's a very high stress situation in, in your guys' ERs whenever this comes up.
1: Definitely. And Dr. Brooks, maybe you can add in about some of the other places where this takes place or the example that you gave me on where you might see this occur outside of Arizona?
2: Yeah. I mean, for the bark scorpion specifically, and that again is the only really clinically relevant scorpion for humans in North America, there's about 10 or 15 other, other species in uh, North America that can lead to some localized effects and pain and paresthesias. Um, but they're usually, um, definitely not as bad and they don't have the potential for morbidity and mortality like the bark scorpion does. But yeah, I mean uh, the lower elevations all across Arizona rather is, is prime uh, area for this. Southern California, Southern um, New Mexico, and then the Western parts of Texas. I mean, and there's also some, you know, transportable uh, scorpions. Our colleagues in, in Pitt gave me a call once and they were seeing two people that got stung, on a plane that had just left Phoenix, you know, the family was up in Grand Canyon and then came down and did some hiking in Phoenix and got on a plane and they hypothesized that the Scorpion must have got into their luggage. And then oh, no. when they were yeah getting their luggage <laughs> out off the plane at, at, at the Pittsburgh airport, um, they got stung to both of them. Um, and then they ended up in the emergency department, they did okay. And they don't have antivenom there, you know, you know, wouldn't be carried locally, but those folks did okay and were able to go home. But it, you know, there's always potential for it. And and there are collectors, as you know, I mean, herpetologists and arachnidologists, I guess, and, you know, they've got um, some unique um, uh, animals and critters at home. And that's just a subtle message for For like ED staff, when someone comes in with a bite or a sting or an envenomation, uh, they're not always forthcoming and letting you know that they've got a a captive species. And this happened to me, actually, uh, when I was working elsewhere, and we actually had a cobra envenomation, believe it or not. Uh, This was in Pittsburgh again, and she she wasn't honest about what was going on because this is like a $10,000 snake she had without a license. And then once you get reported, someone goes to the house and, thank God, takes it away before it ends up, you know, biting someone else or killing somebody. So, you know, um, we just assume that, at least in this part of the country, that these are native s- snake bites, but we always ask because we do have um, some people even in this area where they where they get snakes from, from other continents, and, and that obviously changes management.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Absolutely. That is very interesting. Uh, imagine coming home from a flight and then getting stung by a... Scorpion, <laughs> just trying to get your luggage. That sounds yeah. awful.
2: Well, the only good news is then you start to, you know, put things in perspective. And if, you know, the Wi Fi is not working on your next flight or you're 15 minutes late, you really don't care. You're like, that's fine. I, right?
0: It's like, at least I didn't get stung by a scorpion. Yeah. I,
2: ju- I just flew 1,800 miles at 35,000 feet, 500 miles an hour with a bathroom, you know, and, and, right. and, and ice. I like, I think everything's pretty good.
0: <laughs> the miracle of flight. All right, perfect. So uh, we're just going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to start to get into the into why the topic of scorpions and meth are being discussed together. So, Doctor Brooks, could you tell us a little bit about methamphetamine exposures in the pediatric patient?
2: Yeah, sure. And you know, we're going to talk about methamphetamine, but it's important to to just remind ourselves that we're really talking about um, stimulants or sympathomimetic agents. You know, anything that activates. You know, the big three neurotransmitters I think of are, you know, norepinephrine and epinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. So methamphetamine and amphetamine is huge. It's endemic and been endemic in this part of the country for almost 40 years. You know, other parts of the country, you know, it's cocaine. You know, there's, there's like Baltimore area and around Detroit and some areas in, in, in Pennsylvania and even Delaware. I mean, there's just almost no methamphetamine. And we can talk about the psychosocial reasons for that, but there's really not that big of a difference. Um, between cocaine and methamphetamine when we talk about acute effects morbidity mortality how to treat them acutely in the emergency department which is perhaps uh, the most important so we are talking about methamphetamine but there's nothing unique or different about this than than even the designer stimulants or old school cocaine Um, but yeah they all uh, um, you know they they activate these big neurotransmitters and they lead to they block the reuptake of these catecholamines into the presynaptic cell so that you just end up having higher concentrations of these uh, neurotransmitters, again, n- mostly norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. Uh, there are higher concentrations in the synapse, and then they can go downstream to the postsynaptic cell and, and activate and lead to just you know, uh, uncontrolled uh, uh, neuro- neurologic and neuromuscular activities, and the take-home of about you know people say, well, where, what do I have to worry about when someone comes in with methamphetamine toxicity? And the short answer is wherever there's a blood vessel, because wherever there's a blood vessel, this drug's gonna get to that tissue. And the blood vessels themselves can can either have, you know, is uh, you know, like hemorrhage, you know, from a, a hypertensive emergency or or, or hemorrhagic uh, stroke, or you can have inflammation in, and with chronic use, which wouldn't typically happen in little kids, but you can see premature uh, uh, arthrosclerotic disease and cardiovascular disease, particularly in those folks who use these stimulants long-term with tobacco products. So mm-hmm. it's a really big cause of morbidity and mortality in our country and around the world. And, and you know, methamphetamine itself and stimulants and, and, and um, hallucinogenic amphetamines and stuff, they count for about, Six or seven thousand phone calls a year to poison centers in kids under the age of 13, and again, selection bias because there's a lot more kids that are suffering with this that either never go to an ED because their parents know what's going on and and they fear like something may happen to them, or they show up in an emergency department and the diagnosis isn't made. They're like, is this kid seizing or is he having a tantrum or is this acting like they don't know and they treat them and you know if they get a drug screen they'll they should pick it up because it's pretty easy to find but not everyone does that um so we know that there's a heck of a lot more cases of of pediatric and adolescent uh, methamphetamine and other stimulant um exposures and toxicity than what we're aware of
0: yeah and i'd imagine that that's a, a social nightmare you know when we have the adult patient on meth you know you just make the assumption that you know they just they just wanted to use um, but You know, I couldn't even imagine seeing a pediatric patient where where you're thinking about a stimulant exposure or an overdose. And, you know, talking about the epidemiology, do you guys know, like, how do kids get their hands on this? How how, how would a a pediatric patient that young even think to use something like this? How, How do we how do we see this?
2: Well, I know from the poison center data, and and Rebecca probably can talk, you know, anecdotally uh, from the ED and her experiences. But I know poison center data; it's almost always what we call an exploratory ingestion, and we generalize for kids under the age of six. Some people say six and under, but you know, so kids up to the age of about five or six. um, When you know they're like you know, they're like little puppies, right? They explore the universe with their, you know, opposable thumbs and their mouths. So whatever they can wrap their fingers around, including little pills, it goes right into their their mouth. So a lot of these are un are accidental and what we call exploratory ingestion. The kids walking around looking at something, find something, often they see what their parents or friends or older siblings are doing and that's particularly a common scenario with uh, marijuana, to be honest with you, especially edible marijuana. They see, you know, mom and dad or grandmother or whoever eating gummy bears and all this stuff, and they do it. Methamphetamine doesn't have the legitimacy as some of these other substances, obviously. So I don't think, you, you know, it's hard for us to imagine, but this is a common occurrence um, in in a lot of homes in, in around at least this part of the country, where. Uh, you know, people just, they, they, I I appreciate their honesty because I can only help them when they're truthful with me, but they just say, I use methamphetamine every day. It's sort of like their their cup of coffee and I'm not being facetious. I mean, I've had people in our service where, and one lady who's 68 years old and she already had two inpatient geriatric psych stays. And it took the third of presentation for us to get involved and realize that she was intermittently using methamphetamine. And and go nuts she was almost like bipolar and and she would work and clean the house and of course for her (laughs) son-in-law it was great because you know his mother-in-law's clean the house and cooking four four meals a day but it's like it took methamphetamine for her to have this energy so it's um yeah it's um it's very prevalent and i mean it's it's common lots of folks you know unfortunately don't understand how dangerous it is for them and then um they just end up uh um their kids get into it, and that's almost always a scenario. And 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 now um, most people show up, and they're pretty forthcoming about what happened. You know, maybe not on the first salvo. It takes a, you know a good ER staff to to ask the same question in two or three different manners, and then all of a sudden, well, maybe he did get into something or. My sister texted me and said that there's someone who was in the backyard using drugs, and maybe Johnny got into it. You know what I mean? It's, and I get it, because they're, they're scared shitless. They have some remorse. And, by the way, they don't want to get arrested or have CPS take their kid away. I mean, I get it, right? It's that, you know, because don't forget, there are some folks that just, uh, you know, never call 911, right? They know what's going on. They just keep everybody, including the kid at home, and those are the ones that have usually the much worse outcomes.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so usually it's just an, uh, an, an either they're they're curious and and they they eat or swallow something they shouldn't, or um, they just accidentally uh, unknowingly take take meth or or Adderall or, or stimulant. Um, that makes a lot more sense to me than than picturing like a pediatric patient going into you know the little meth cabinet and, and just shooting up for fun. So that's, a good, that's yeah. a good clarification on how that happens. So thank we you. Have,
2: you know, yeah, I, yeah. I'm glad to say that we have not, that is not a common scenario, although I can't speak for hundred years where we're evolving to or de-evolving, <laughs> but that may be in our future.
0: <laughs> we'll see.
1: And from, from our perspective, the reason that this is such, um, these two topics go together and this is such a big teaching one for me whenever I have students or residents Um, from pharmacy is because of the fact that they aren't purposefully using, they are exploring their environment and getting into it. There's a lot of ADHD meds, a lot of older siblings that are on ADHD meds now that also, you know, have the same stimulation effect. And so where we worry is you know, other places may not be that familiar with scorpion. We're very familiar. So our default is, oh, it's probably a scorpion envenomation. Well, we need to step back and say, wait a minute, just because they're a year old, doesn't mean that this behavior we're seeing in front of us is scorpion. So rather, we're sort of coming from it from an opposite perspective in the pediatric hospital, as opposed to the adult hospital, where our default is scorpion, and it could be meth. So we need to get that uh, UDS. Um, In cases that we're suspicious, you know, or maybe isn't a clear cut case, or doesn't respond to treatment, which we'll talk about later, um, Mm -hmm. then we need to go down this road. So Mm
0: -hmm. that makes sense. And so now getting into kind of the nitty gritty of the episode, uh, Dr. Brooks, what are the signs and symptoms uh, of meth exposure in the pediatric patient?
2: Yeah, and, they're, and like Rebecca's saying, they're dangerously similar to uh, scorpions. You know, when I trained about 23 or 24 years ago, you know, we'd get called to see these kids and we'd go down and um, it was hard to tell from the doorway whether it was methamphetamine or a scorpion. The, the, the one, never bury the lead, that's what I'm told, but the eye movements can be a telltale sign because you get rotatory You can get rotatory uh, nystagmus with scorpion stings and and opsoclonus where the eyes are sort of ping-ponging around and they're often disconjugate. It's a very unique finding and you start thinking, oh my lord, I'm going to have to sedate this kid and get an MRI because there's something going on in his brainstem, which it could be, but unlikely. It's probably uh, a scorpion sting. But other than that, they're all very similar. You can have, you know, the excessive release and activation of, of norepi receptors and dopamine and serotonin leads to uncontrolled neuromuscular activity, hypertension, tachycardia, agitation. Um, You know, the subtle little findings is usually with a stimulant toxicity, that the child uh, will have its eyes open and look around and trying to engage With scorpions, because of this opsoclonus, I'm told um, by older kids and and adults that it's incredibly nauseating because your eyes are moving around and you sort of get vertigo. So most grade threes and grade fours spend a significant amount of time with their eyes closed and they won't, you know, a little toddler who can't really communicate very well, won't open their eyes for you. So that's kind of another subtle little uh, finding. But man, other than that, their vital signs are all the same. And I know, uh, you know, Rebecca and I've been at the bedside with a number of these folks and we've seen, and it's all about the airway, um, you know, for both these, uh, patients. And then it's about their agitation and specifically for methamphetamine getting ahead of, the, of any agitation, which is going to lead to hyperthermia and rhabdo.
0: Yeah, perfect. So, um, basically in a nutshell, they're, from what I'm hearing from you guys is there's there's a good amount of symptoms that scorpion stings and meth exposures can have in common in pediatric patients, which can make it very difficult for you guys to differ- differentiate between the two. And so what I'm hearing is they're both going to be tachycardic and hypertensive. Uh, they're both going to be agitated. The child's probably going to be crying. Uh they're both going to have some sort of abnormal eye and motor activity. Is there anything else that they specifically have in common that that I missed?
1: Uh, tachycardic and and hyperthermic. They're both hot. Um I think those are the main ones. Those are the main yeah. ones. Yeah. Okay.
2: And and regardless of the agitation, we try to remind folks that, you know, just focus on the airway cuz sometimes um you know we're we're always trying to do the right thing, and everyone wants to get a set of vital signs. It's just bored into us. But um, I just remind folks that when you have a little kid, three or four years old, and and they're coming in with what I like to describe as agitated delirium, right? They're agitated, so they're having psychomotor movement in response to a perceived or real threat, right? So anxiety is just the thought of threat, and, and agitation is the physical manifestations of of you feeling threatened, whether it's true or not you know but it doesn't matter so they're agitated and they're delirious you know they're just they're not confused they they, they're not sure what the heck's going on but they're usually like superhuman strength and they're kicking folks around the room and they're trying desperately to get a blood pressure cuff and i always remind folks okay just put the pulse oximeter on if we can get it on and keep it on that's great because i just want to see what their oxygen level is and it's going to give us a heart rate and you know they'll even tell us sort of if if it's a you know what kind of rate it is but If a three-year-old kid is kicking the hell out of two nurses and an EMT student, um, their blood pressure is probably fine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to give an example of that since you brought it up. We had uh, several years ago, probably one of the most severe cases early on that I saw, we had this, I would say that the child wasn't more than 18 to 20 months old. And one of our ED techs who's well in the high 200s in weight and very strong, had his body across this toddler to hold her down so that we could get an IV in. And he was sweating. So that superhuman hum- strength is, uh, is for real.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and one other weird thing, just to bring it up, um, just because it's not always the presenting case, but it's sometimes what people are focusing on. But there are case reports of scorpion-induced uh, priapism in little kids. I, I'm not sure about adults. Very, very rare associated with methamphetamine. I'm not sure if it's ever been seen in a kid with um, exploratory ingestion, but just, you know, it's just something to think about because that can become a surgical issue. doesn't always respond to uh, antive- um, uh, antivenom, but we, we have had, I'd say, maybe five or six um, adolescent priapisms from scorpion stings, including one, uh, maybe just like four months ago. The kid did okay. Uh, but you know, it's just that, that sometimes that can be the chief complaint very rarely, but there, you know, I can't think of a whole lot of other reasons that a little kid would have a priapism.
0: Okay. Okay. And, so just to I, I just want to spend just a, a couple more minutes on, on this part for for us in the adult world uh, who also don't live in the southwest. I really want to focus in on if we can a little bit more um you know I guess this question is directed towards Rebecca and then Dan. Uh Dr. Brooks, please feel free to f- jump in as needed. Um and we we touched on it a little bit but kind of as as a list as a quick go-to guide, what are some of the big differences in presentation that would guide you guys in the pediatric centers to the correct diagnosis of scorpion sting versus some type of stimulant exposure.
1: Okay. So I have one that actually came up just a couple of weeks ago for me. We had this kid that was agitated and crying and, you know, all those things, presumably tachycardic, not on a monitor yet, brought in by mom and we all, you know, rush in there. Oh, is a scorpion? I'm looking to see if we need to treat. And um, the child, you know, we're, we're like Dan said, we're trying to get monitors on him and, and he was, uh, pushing us away and all of that. And then we had child life there, which is, uh, our wonderful, um, employees that will come in and help distract a patient so that we can get our job done. And she brought in an iPad and the kid was distractible. Um, and that was a clue. So being able to focus eyes right on something, um, quieting down with comfort and or an iPad uh, with a show on. Um, those are things that you don't see with scorpion envenomation because the movements okay. of scorpion envenomation are not within their control. They're not purposeful. They're uh, uncontrolled body fasciculations and tetany. Um, and, so, and their eyes are very uncomfortable. And they are the best way that I like to describe them is googly eyes, like on a doll where they're just all over the place. Mm -hmm. Um, And they do close their eyes most of the time. So this child was distractible. And to me, that was a clue. And I did not rush to get antivenom. Turned out um, he was positive for THC. So not meth, but still stimulatory effect. Um, So that those are the biggest, the eyes, the movements that I see uh, that clue me into maybe this isn't a straightforward scorpion case.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think the eyes are, are, are it's hard because there's a lot going on and this kid looks like a banshee or from the exorcism and, and, you (laughs) know, it's hard for you to like, people are like, I mean, we always want to fix stuff, right? Especially a little kid that's going crazy. We want to console them or put them to sleep and intubate them something. We just want the noise to stop. But yeah, if you just, um, take a deep breath and realize kids, you know, breathing. Okay. He's not drowning in secretions, um, which you, you could see with, uh, scorpions. Um, but, and take a look at the eyes because, um, you know, if they're holding their eyes closed and then you get them both open and it sometimes takes three people to, to open up a 18 month old kid's eye lids. But um, then if they're disconjugate, bouncing all over the place, the real uh then, then that's a uh, scorpion envenomation. But what's nice is I know we're going to segue into it, but the initial, you know, step one is airway for, for, for any of these kids. And step two is um, sedation. So the, the first uh, uh, treatment, step is pretty much the same, very similar for, for both. And you can see how they respond because Rebecca is hundred percent correct that, you know, you, you've got a chance. I'm not going to say it's, it's probable, but it's definitely possible that just with gentle reassurance and, and, and con- consoling, you can get a methamphetamine stimulated child to, um, calm down, not, not go to baseline and go to sleep, but calm down and maybe interact or, or engage in purposeful movement. That's much mm-hmm. less likely if, if not impossible with a grade four scorpion envenomation, they just, it truly is a neuromuscular, it's not them responding to excessive amounts of dopamine and serotonin. It's their s- sodium channels being open at the neuromuscular junction. They've got no conscious control over that uh, muscle activity.
0: Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, if, if you guys, um, we touched on it just a little tiny bit, but if, uh, you know, we make the diagnosis of a scorpion sting, uh, Rebecca, how do we treat that, um, scorpion sting?
1: So with grade one or grade two, uh, you know, if you don't have all the neuromuscular activity going on and it's just local pain, we can treat with ibuprofen, you know, any kind of oral pain medication, Um, if it's more severe, we could go the opioid route. There's intranasal fentanyl if we want to, um, explore that option, but usually just ibuprofen and kind of monitoring to make sure that the patient doesn't have any progression of symptoms. Because again, our main concern is airway over pain, but still we want them comfortable, you know, especially little kids. We worry about them being uncomfortable. Um, even grade three, there is an opportunity for us to consider, uh, not putting in an IV and treating with oral pain medication and monitoring the patient. If they're an older child, particularly, um, we could consider uh, oral or intranasal benzos. Um, Just a word of caution on that, though, because airway is our biggest concern. If they are going to progress to more severe symptoms and we want to treat with antivenom, we want to be super careful with sedation, over sedating, especially with benzos, because as soon as the antivenom kicks in, now you've got the benzodiazepine, especially if it's a longer acting one, still on board. Um, So anyway, one, two, and some cases of three oral medications and observe. Uh, We've got a more severe grade three or a grade four case, and particularly in patients who have a lot of secretions, who are very concerned about airway, then we're not going to mess around. We're going to go Uh, and give antivenom, and Anascorp is the um, antivenom that we use. It's uh, received FDA approval in 2011, and the way that the package insert reads, it says to give a first dose as three vials, reconstituting with five mls of normal saline and um, QSing to a total of 50 mls and giving over 10 minutes. Because of the cost associated and because there are a large percentage of patients that respond well with only one or two vials, we may start with fewer than three. Um, But if you've got a child who you're looking at potentially intubating any minute, we're going to start with the way the package insert reads and give three right out the gate. Um, Then we can give subsequent doses repeating after 30 minutes or so if the patient is still symptomatic and we do a vial at a time up to a total of five vials. Um, and each time it's given in 50 mLs over 10 minutes. Uh, so, and the um, anascorp is made in Mexico by a company called BioClon and they hypersensitize horses with scorpion venom, extract the serum, and then isolate the Fab 2 region of the antibodies to make the
0: antivenom. And when once you give the antivenom, how, how quickly does it work?
1: So, you know, it can work. Um, Dr. Brooks, you can answer this better than me, but I'd say at least up to an hour, you're going to, and maybe even a little beyond, you're going to see ongoing um, effects of it. So we try to give it enough time to, to work. Um, but within a couple of hours, you know, typically we're seeing a patient, if all goes well, sitting up, eating a popsicle and ready to go home. So it's a complete turnaround. Um And then once you give the medication, once you give the antivenom, it binds to the venom and and once you see symptoms improving, there's not a recurrence of symptoms. It's not like where you have anaphylaxis and you give epinephrine and then the epinephrine wears off and the anaphylactic effects come back. Um, So the benefit of that is once you see the child improving, you know, they're just going to get better from there and you're out of the woods of having to potentially
0: intubate. So I, I can, I can imagine that, that Anascorp is, is super expensive. And I don't know that you would necessarily do this, but have you guys ever seen it given to rule out scorpion envenomation? And, you know, kind of as a segue to that, I think it, it was Rebecca that sent me a couple articles, or maybe I found them on my own. Where they had some case reports of pediatric patients getting the antivenom and improving, even though it was a, a meth exposure and not a scorpion sting. Uh, so, have you guys ever seen that? Do you have any thoughts as to why you know that that would have helped that patient it, despite being st- not not being stung by a scorpion? Do you guys have any experience with that?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, we we have had uh, folks receive, little kids typically, receive antivenom for unclear reasons and maybe when the diagnosis has changed. I mean, it, it doesn't happen, you know, where Rebecca and I work. You know, we're lucky just because we're, you know, major hospital. This is where, you know, we've just got a lot of experience. And, you know, we never, you know, if I don't see, if you see something once a year, you're not going to be good at it. I mean, I'm sorry, right? You just can't, you can't. Can't do that or recognize it, especially in smaller critical access hospitals or and, and such. But so um, we've never, to the poison center at the bedside, I've never used uh, antivenom to rule out. You know, I'm I trying to make sure that I've got the right diagnosis because it is an expensive product. I mean, the cost is one thing and then the charge is another, and it is a limited resource. I mean, it's been a while, but there have been times in the past where we've run out of antivenom and then these really sick kids need to be intubated put on a midazolam drip and, and put to sleep in the PICU for 24 hours. So we, we try to be shepherds of these resources, but yes, we have um, taken care of folks that have gotten antivenom at the outside facility, maybe has limited um, uh, resources or maybe not have a lab that can check things and and there's no change or or, or um, there's a subtle change and then they send them to us at, at we're, we're, you know, PCH and we, we kind of figure it out, but that's, you know, it's Monday morning quarterbacking often. And again, it's not criticizing any of our colleagues at smaller facilities. But when I hear about folks that may have gotten better from antivenom, and it turns out to be something else like, you know, meningitis or, you know, methamphetamine, when you look back through the MAR, you know, it's because they got antivenom and then they got some more fentanyl or Versed, or or they got an antipyretic and rosefin, you know what I mean? So it's like the, the temporal association um, w- between improvement clinically and the administration of antivenom is... It, can't be a claim for causation
0: sure okay that makes sense and when you guys get you know calls from these smaller facilities or even at the large centers that you guys work at what uh do you base your recommendation to on to give the anti-venom are, are there specific signs and symptoms you look for is there any guidance that you guys provide uh to tell people okay if you see this then give the anti-venom
1: uh, i'll just and take it. I mean, we're not called as often as the poison control, but we do get calls from other hospitals who are wanting to transfer a patient to us. And I can remember one time that, you know, I had was sitting next to one of our attendings who received a call from an outside uh, provider who was like, you know, I'm not sure what's wrong with this kid. We gave Ativan and like, we thought they were seizing and we thought they got a little bit better, but then they're still doing the movements and they haven't been stopping. And it's been like an hour and a half. And like, they're describing what we could hear over the phone were all those signs and symptoms that we talked about earlier of a grade three or grade four envenomation. We've got all the muscle movements and you've got the eye movements and you've got the tongue fasciculations that are not uh, specific to seizure that, you know, these movements even look different from um, grandma seizures because they are sort of more of a writhing movement, uh, rhythmic and not necessarily, um, like what a seizure would look like. So in that case, they didn't have antivenom. So we just said, that's a scorpion envenomation. She made the diagnosis over the phone and send them, send them to us and we'll get antivenom in them.
0: Okay. Got it. And as a side note, um, how would I go about getting something like this if I stepped off a plane? Methamphetamine? <laughs> that i know All right let's uh, do that uh, off
2: air right yeah, buddy yeah. i mean come on
0: <laughs> uh the anascorp say i get off a plane in pittsburgh and i get i get stung um do you just contact your your nearest regional poison control center to do they do they drop ship this stuff have you guys ever had experience with shipping it you know out of state
2: um well no and the reason why is but a time yeah, it's a great question but but the time they got the antivenom they wouldn't need it anymore because no they they're either going to be better with midazolam and fentanyl or they're going to be intubated so okay. we sh- we have had people give antivenom after being intubated and that's always up to the staff i mean for was my kid i'd probably want them to get the antivenom wake up get extubated and go home that night but you know that's a lot you know what i mean and and sometimes we all anyone who works and has worked in you know U.S. healthcare for you know more than six minutes. You realize that you know once you get on the conveyor belt, things happen, right? It's like you know they're, they're admitted. What do you mean? Well, they you know they don't they can go home. No, they're already admitted or whatever. You know we got to pick you up. We got a ventilator. We got a so um it's hard sometimes to pump the brakes in and uh, change your courses. but we've done it, especially where we work. Rebecca and I work because we look at these resources and we look at the kid and they're great. You know it's like if it was my kid. You know, I want to go home. I don't want to spend a night in that PICU. You know, I'm going home. But there's cost to it. There's convenience. There's, you know, there's a lot going on. So um, wherever the antivenom isn't readily available, and I'd say within, you know, an hour or two, um, Mm. if the kid's that sick and they really need it, um, they're usually intubated. Uh, But is it plausible that we could do that? Sure. And there's um, uh, um, lines, and this is another reason to use your poison centers, there's lists of antivenoms that are available. And, you you know, it's maybe once a year, once every other year at our service, you know, because we're lucky we've got the only level one toxin in this part of the country. So, you know, a lot of patients get flown to us with specific known tox exposures, including um, non-native snake envenomations, you know, whether it's collectors or we've had some unique cases. And I'll tell you. Well, I probably shouldn't tell you. I wish I could tell you, but it would be too obvious. Um, but but we're, we've taken care of folks, and we've had to call around to different zoos that have like a Taipei, you know, or or, or Cobra event, like we were talking about before. And and there's no easy method. You'd think there would be, but what we do is we beg and plead, and we've worked with some airlines in the past, and someone from the zoo will curry it and take it, get a special pass now, you know, and, and carry it and hand it to one of the pilots. And the pilot, like... He or she puts it in their duffel bag or flight bag or whatever the, you know, they got those little wheelie bags and, and then they show up in Phoenix and one of our staff is here and they come off the plane and they hand it to us and, and we go, you, you think it'd be more um, sophisticated than that. but <laughs> So there are mechanisms to get unique antivenom to the patient in certain situations. But I think, and Rebecca, I, I don't know if you feel differently, but I, I can't imagine a scenario where someone could wait eight hours and still meet criteria for antivenom without having been intubated.
1: Yeah. And I suppose we, I haven't mentioned that already. I I don't think that this is different getting stung by a scorpion is very different from being bitten by a rattlesnake or a cobra. Um, So that your body will process the venom over time on its own um, without all of that in less than 48 hours. I think it's about 30 hours or so. Um, So, the problem is, is if your airway is affected, you know you're going to die from respiratory distress that progresses to failure, that progresses to your heart stopping. So, um, if we can protect the airway, you don't need antivenom. Oh, okay. So it's okay. not deadly in the same sense that uh, snake bites are, so even though we're treating with an antivenom, it's it's sort of misleading in that respect, I think, like you know, with rattlesnake bites, we have hypercoagulopathies, you know, and thrombocytopenia, and like all these other things right. with scorpion envenomation we're worried about airway, if we can protect your airway, and we can keep you sedated while we do it until your body metabolizes the venom, then you're good to go home. So then it's a matter of, are we going to prevent an ICU stay by giving anti venom and sending the kid, you know, having the kids sit up and eat a popsicle three hours later and go home or two hours later, or, you know, like which of the two, Um, and and it should be an either or not of both, but there are times when we do both.
0: Okay. Okay. See, I think I just had my aha moment. You know, us, us Northerners were like, what do you mean? It's, it's venom. Don't, don't you have to give anti-venom? Like, don't you just like ship it or have somebody, you know, fly it over? And, and I think uh, that was a great comment uh, by you, Rebecca. So yeah, if your body will clear it, if you're just doing supportive care and intubation, then I guess there isn't, you know, it's not like a crow fab or something where you, you know, try your hardest to get your hands on something um, that actually, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so thank you for clearing that up.
1: Yeah. And that is, oh, go ahead. No, please go. I was just going to say one more thing with the, um, treatment is that we also, uh, usually give IV fentanyl. Um, it's a short acting opioid. It can make the patient a little bit more comfortable. Um, we're not having to hold them down the entire time. The Anascorp is infusing. Um, and it just makes it, better for the patient and everybody around them, quite honestly, to manage their pain while Anascorp is taking effect. So just another uh, additional treatment.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. I think if single line agents is fentanyl is probably the best because once you get at a nice dose, um, it is also sedative, hypnotic. So, you know, again, in places that take care of a lot of sick kids, everyone's used to it, like everybody's used to it. But in smaller places, sometimes they're just not. I mean, we've had folks tell us, we don't use fentanyl in kids here. And I'm, I mean, this was before the opiate epidemic. So I think now everyone's so, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but they're so comfortable, right? With, uh, you, you know, uh, fentanyl now, maybe not in a, a, a two-year-old kid, but, you, you know, it's, it is just this, it is mechanistically and the duration of action and everything. It's number, It's it's like, Anivenom is the best. Fentanyl is like one B. Oh. And we've actually seen kids get high doses of fentanyl. You know, what I mean, almost like you're trying to do a little conscious sedation so you can, you know, set their femur fracture or something. Um, and then antivenom shows up and you're like, man, they don't really need it, you know, maybe and, and you wait a little bit and then sometimes the fentanyl wears off because you know kids chew through fentanyl really, really fast. Right. Um, but yeah, and Rebecca's hundred percent right. If you got to use the shorter acting, really potent. Fentanyl for sure, medazolam are, are the best drugs at, at appropriate doses, and and again, it's not low weight-based dosing, right? They, especially when the kid's you know throwing people around the room, it's giddy up. You got you got to, put them to you got to get them in a happy place.
0: Perfect. And I just have one final question just to kind of wrap it up. You know, we talked about how to treat the the scorpion, uh, stings and just for completion, Dr. Brooks, can you tell us how you would treat a meth exposure in the pediatric patient and obviously how it's a little bit different than treating a pediatric patient that was stung by a scorpion?
2: Yeah, but you know, uh, if I know it's methamphetamine and, or if I'm thinking that's what it is, but, but, um, uh, uh, Scorpion sting or another diagnosis could, you know, absence seizure or something. I mean, hyperglycemia, right? I mean, they're usually comatose, but not always. There's that twilight period when they can become hyperactivated. So, you know, checking their glucose in these folks is always a good idea. But, um, yeah, benzos. I like to use in a pretty aggressive IV. You know, I mean, you know, if you're in a hospital, you got resources, this am an in intranasal, I, you know, it's okay, but, um, you know, just put an IV in if you can. And if you can't, atomize it and intranasal is probably second best. But a healthy dose of midazolam uh okay. is good and then uh see how they respond. And if you know or you're really uh hedging towards um methamphetamine and the kid's sick, I mean this isn't just someone who's uncomfortable and doesn't look great to to road test to go home with, with mom or grandma or whoever, uh you know, you give a healthy dose of, of midazolam and then if I'm not seeing anything Within like two minutes, and that's about all I wait, I double the dose, right? And I mean, you're given a couple milligrams, you know, three or four milligrams, even to a little kid, it's what they need. And um, if you start to see them um, quieting down, and it usually goes into a waxing phase where they kind of want to fall asleep, but then enough of these amphetamine induced uh, neurotransmitter build up, and then they start moving around and crying again or agitated stuff, and then they lay back down for a second. Then that's where I start looking towards really a small amount of a dopamine antagonist. Because again, we talked about methamphetamine and stimulants releasing norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonergic uh, um, um, neurotransmitters. And the dopaminergic uh, transmitters, especially in the basal ganglia, is what leads to all these movement disorders. And that's some of the side effects of different drugs and such. And then the limbic system can make them, you know... a little hyperactive as well, and animated and such. So, tiny little doses of Haldol, like uh, like point two, right, or point one, if in a little kid. Or usually I just go point two five. That's pretty. That's a pretty low dose. Um, and and sometimes it just melts them away. And it, it's an art to that because there's no way we have no idea how much they got into, you know, and in what form it was because it could still be dissolving in their gut, you know. We don't know. Um, and and everyone's different, you know, uh, in as far as their susceptibility to these drugs and such so we ju- it's just um you know cooking it's like you know you can always add more garlic right so just add a little <laughs> bit more garlic but i think the biggest mistake i see especially in places that aren't used to taking care of uh agitated delirium in any patient especially little kids is that they wait too long it's like okay let's give them 0.5 of Versed said q1 hour prn no man this has got to be over in an hour right like so I hate to say it, but for the caregivers out there, and this also, even if they go home, this can constitute critical care time because it is. You got to be at the bedside touching them. The drugs should be drawn up and you should be giving them. And that's another reason why we like to give it IV because you know when it's going to kick in and it should be like, you know, a minute. And if it's two or three minutes later and you're not seeing the effect, then you need to double the dose. And so for methamphetamine, and we see these a lot, you know, they come in, they tell us, or we're told. And, you know, again, most patients and and caregivers, including the parents, are very concerned about what's going on. And it's obvious, and that's great, because then we can just focus on the kid and not have to waste resources trying to figure out what the hell's going on. But that's Mm -hmm. that case, we just give a healthy dose of midazolam. I double it. Like uh, two minutes later, so I'll ask for five milligrams or whatever comes in four, usually six. I, f- it comes in five, doesn't it, Rebecca? How five? Yeah. yeah. And what about Medazlam? Is it
1: well,
2: five. Yeah. So it's a weird dose. So I like just draw up five milligrams, give it to me, and give me a flush. You know, and uh, and then I just give a couple two milligrams and we wait. And then if they're not better, I give the rest of it. And, and then if they're better, but they've still got this intermittent twitching, and you see it, it's classic, it's, it's very, very classic where they look better, but they're not there yet. Then you can add a little bit of, of IV haldol. It takes a little longer to kick in. It's got to get, you know, got to get into some deeper brain structures. But, um, and then they just go to sleep. And then, um, you know, they often, we admit them, we get them stabilized in the uh, ED. They almost always go to the PICU because they just need a close care. Not always. Sometimes they're really kind of snowed. We get them on entitled CO2, which is probably, you know, once the death is starting to settle, you got to get these little kids on entitled CO2. Make sure that they're not mouth breathing. You know, if you're using the nasal prongs, but you've got to get them on entitled CO2 and put them someplace where, you know, they can be monitored. You know, it's like I always say, you know, putting putting a patient, at least in the adult world, on a telemetry bed is kind of meaningless because all it helps you do is the next morning you can figure out exactly what time they died at. Right? I mean, no one's looking at them. <laughs> And those alarms go off so often every time they go to the bathroom or bend over to pass gas, you know, the alarms going off. We're just hitting silence. So, you know, these kids do deserve a higher acuity setting. And if it means staying in the ED for several more hours, if that's even a plausible thing in this century, that's where they got to go or stay so that someone's some they're on, you know, pulse like symmetry and title CO2 because of the drug of, effects um, and and, uh, and watch them closely. And, and again, this is what we're talking about. This is why with scorpion stings, if you can, given the antivenom, cause man, you know, we, we talked a bit about this, but I think when we looked at, at first, when the scorpion came in, I think the median time, again, this is median time, to like resolution of symptoms was 31 minutes. So it's like, you know, and sometimes they need more, you know, um, it, but you know, about an hour out, like Rebecca said, they're eating lolly they're eating they're like um what's it called popsicle. not a popsicle popsicle yes yeah, i don't have kids so yeah so you know that's our road test like can the kid eat a popsicle and can they walk to the bathroom they don't have to use the bathroom but can they walk to the yeah, it's time to go home you know and, yeah. and sometimes that's 2 a.m but if mom and dad want to go home at 2 a.m let them go home it's it's over
0: perfect Uh, thank you guys so, so much. That was super interesting. Uh, you guys did an awesome job. Is there any other parting thoughts that you had that you wanted to mention and and didn't mention, um, or anything that you, you, um, thought would be important to say, uh, before we end.
2: We've talked about a lot of really cool things and and they're cool for a number of reasons, including their uniqueness, right? Because even if something's cool, but you see it every day, you just don't care anymore. Right. Um, but just remember, um, we call Your Poison Center. I mean, that's the whole reason we're, we're here. You know, it's staffed by nurses and pharmacists, uh, including PharmDs, 24 hours a day. There's uh, MD physicians that I can talk to you 24 hours a day. It's free, it's confidential. I mean, um, and it helps us understand what's going on in the community. So if you are seeing cl- clusters of methamphetamine in any patients, particularly high school kids, whatever, we ought to know about it because we share that information literally every eight minutes with the CDC. So it's one of the best public health monitors that's out there and they can remind you of all the stuff that we've talked about. You know, you don't have to get on the interweb and look stuff up and figure out if it's really up to date or if it's the right source or whatever, just call the poison center and you're going to be able to give your patient specific details and they're going to help you uh, deliver optimal care.
0: Okay. Rebecca, anything else on your end?
1: I, I would just have to say that even though I've seen this many, many times, it's quite miraculous. It's probably one of my favorite drugs, the Anascorp is, just to be able to see a patient who is in that bad of a state that you think that you have to, you know, sedate and put in the ICU. And then to be able to give this wonderful drug to them and have them turn around very quickly and go home is just, it's very comforting. And it's, it's um, very satisfying to be able to tell a family, like, you know, Your kid will be back to normal in no time. Just sit it out and it'll be all right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Again, thank you both so much for being here and for the listeners. As always, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for wanting to learn more about pharmacotherapy. If you have any comments or anything else you'd like to add to this episode, please give me a shout out on the ERRX podcast Instagram page or you can reach out to me on errxpodcast.com. I'd love to respond to all comments and criticisms. And finally, I'd also like to shout out the anonymous user named Someone for their donation on buymeacoffee.com. Thank you so much for supporting the show and keeping it free for everyone. I'll see you guys next time.